I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. Thanks so much for being here. My guest today is author C.S.E. Cooney, otherwise known as Claire. She writes lush, fantastical stories about immortal beings, plucky reporters, socialites, debutantes, and more. Her most recent release is Dark Breakers, a collection of three new stories and two previously published tales from the world that we were first introduced to in her World Fantasy Award-nominated novella Desdemona and the Deep. She joins me today to talk about her collection, as well as art and world building and language and more. Claire, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us about the world that these stories exist in. I had moved to Rhode Island at the end of 2011, and I wanted to move for my 30th birthday, and we crossed over the state lines when I turned 30. My mother and I were, were having an adventure. And one of the places I visited with one of the new friends I made there was the Breakers, I think it's called, in Newport, Rhode Island, where the Vanderbilt Summer Cottage, and of course it is a vast estate mansion, very, very lujo, as Carlos would say, who's my husband. And I really enjoyed the setting, and I really enjoyed the thought of a servant in that household being a queen in an, another world. I like that was sort of what I started with. I was like, "Ooh, she can be the servant by day and the queen by night and maybe there's a maybe there's a young man who's a maybe he's a stable hand by day and maybe she pulls him in to be her consort by night." You know, that was sort of the idea. I wanted to write um I wanted to experiment with self-publishing cuz that was really big at that point or starting to be big and you know, it's hard to get published in general, so I thought, "Well, you know, I'll write these kind of secret romance fantasies and I won't worry about being awesome or experimental or all of the other things one does in like in the genre to 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 I don't know stand out or to be in competition with the brilliant minds that are all working in the genre this was like this will just be for me and like it was a it was the taking the pressure off an idea just exploring it for play's sake and and indulging in some of my you know secret romantic whims sort of thing so uh, as Sharon Shin writes some really great romantic fantasy and she sort of egged me on and and so I did my experiment and but that's where dark breakers was sort of generated was that that mood that idea that sort of away from trying to compete in the market. I had no idea about self-publishing then or how comp competitive it is. All of that, all the awesome things that go into self-publishing other than writing something. But it was, the, that was the beginning. And so the, the books are kind of set on a version of The Breakers. So what drew you particularly to that place? What do you love about it? I grew up in Arizona. And so Rhode Island, which we visited once when I was nine, became a sort of mythological place like in my childhood memory it's this place the Atlantic Ocean was so different from the Pacific Ocean which I had visited a few more times as a child because it was closer and it was rockier and craggier and colder and so like the whole the whole memory the whole childhood memory existed in a, in a place that was like a longing to return for you know 20 years I longed and so moving there to a little town called Westerly was this lifelong dream and then once you're there it becomes reality and then I wanted to explore my reality and so at that point in my 30s 
finally starting to become more aware of the real world and all of its repercussions and implications. And I was starting to narrate books and read more and research all those things. And the internet is a great tool for all of that. And I feel like what struck me was the, the time period, particularly in which it's built, where the huge disparities of wealth and poverty and these displays where you could have this mansion with 200 rooms and refer to it as your cottage because your real house was in New York City and it was being worked on, you know, and these women who were sort of at the forefront of the wave of the suffragist movement who kind of made it fashionable where before before these Vanderbilt women and a, a bunch of other people there was there's huge feminist movement and a suffragist new movement but it wasn't it wasn't fashion it wasn't like lipstick and it wasn't furs and diamonds so it was really like the province of spinsters and and blue stockings but but these women wanted a club that they could meet at like their husbands met at but their husbands were like we don't want our wives going to clubs do you know what we get up to at clubs and so like that spurred a certain movement in these in these lives that was so different from what normal women or like women who were not in that like one percent wanted in life and in the vote and all of that anyway it was such an interesting like rich and weird time period that paralleled a lot of what's happening in america now and that that and the house that represented that and the idea of moving between worlds as an extended metaphor of like all the different worlds we live in just right now in this world and how they exist side by side all of that it was just an interesting it kept being interesting it didn't ever stop being interesting the first story i guess that it sounds like you wrote in this world is probably what is the breaker queen in this particular collection and like you said these are stories that you wrote and self-published more than a decade ago and in the intro to the book, you know, talks about how these are heavily revised for you for this particular collection. So what was it like going back to those stories again? The first two stories had their first life as being self-published. And then they were, they both had second lives that I never expected. One in Rich Horton's Year's Best and one in Lightspeed Magazine. So they kind of had a legitimacy that I wasn't even looking for, for them to have. And that made me pay more close attention to them so that when I wrote the third book or the third movement in this that's not in Dark Breakers called Desdemona and the Deep, it was published by Tor.com, which was my first like big publisher as, as a novella to like look at my work and to want it. So it was like a, a level up. And once I wrote Desdemona, which I feel was a big level up in my life as a writer and um, the other two, the previous two, though they had their second lives, didn't match that level or like what I felt I wanted to be doing in my writing or what I felt I could be doing with this world. So I took them off being self-published, uh, like I removed them from Amazon. And so I've added 15,000 words to each of them. So they're considerably longer, they're richer, they're more, I would say, politically aware, and they match more ethically and morally how I feel now versus a sort of a a dreamier and less aware version that I was more like 10 years ago. Is that interesting to you reading that and knowing how you as a person as a writer have changed so much? Well, certainly it's yes, it's certainly fascinating. And it just reminds me to like, there's a couple things there's like a sense of shame for some of my early work, but also a sense of like, well, 
everybody starts not knowing everything and and then we move forward and so to remember that we can say of almost any writer oh they wrote such and such they're this kind of person and to remember that that person is not only that kind of person that person is all the people they were over all the years they were learning um and and especially for young writers to just look with compassion and understanding and hope that that as they learn and love their craft and read widely they will grow in wisdom as i hope i will continue to do so um, because i it would be terrible to stop now but it does mean that the whole body of work that I've left behind that I was so proud of when it begins and you know you go on your journey and you think you think it's you think it's going to be one way and and it really is so much more interesting than that and so much richer but it's like there, it calls for a great deal of like level-headedness and compassion and forgiveness for yourself but also like that realization of there is so much work ahead and I have a lot of work to do myself absolutely one of the other things that I love about Dark Breakers um, is that art itself is so much a part of this world. And I think the sense of community and the different worlds and the art reminds me so much of Charles DeLint, who is one of my absolutely favorite all time forever till the end of the world authors. Um, is he any by chance an influence of yours? Oh, huge. So. I mean, he was one of the people, I, I call them, um, it started out with the mix. So it was McKillop, McCaffrey, and McKinley. And I would just make a beeline at the library, uh, probably starting with the age 14, going to like early 20s. Um, and then and then that expanded to Delint until all of the shelves of everything that Delint had written, I had read. And then at used bookstores, I accumulated more Delint. And then that Delint, I think, led to Windling, Terry Windling and those anthologies. And also that pinged back to McKillop because of the um, kind of grown up fairy tale anthologies like Jack of Kinrowan and uh, the McKillop was the something rich and strange were, were all part of that. So then reading the Windling and Datlow anthologies and discovering Ellen Kushner and Delia Sherman so that it, it just kept rippling out um, in such richness. But I think DeLint was the first time I noticed that Stephen King did it later, you know, as I read more. But the first time I saw that a short story could have a character as a cousin of somebody or a, a, a slight acquaintance who would then be the main character in a novel who would have a brother who would be mentioned in another novella over here. And I just loved that interconnected world on a like a village level or a city level where then suddenly you have whole cities populated by people that you know better than the people who are your neighbors, you know, in a yeah, city where yeah. you know no one. I just love that about Delint and I love the kind of breathtaking flow between perceived reality and and the realm of spirits and fairy. I loved I love I always still like look up at rooftops and at uh telephone wires because I remember the crow girls saying not most people don't look up and so I always wanted to be the person who looks up and sees something interesting on a rooftop you know I've always wanted a room in Tamsin house you yes. know like that's just the, the the ideal I think but I think yeah. I, I love I love hearing that and seeing those echoes with this because found family stories especially are are some of my favorite and there are echoes of this with the dark breakers is there a particular character that you feel super drawn to? I mean, Nyx is probably one of my favorites. I love Nyx partly because she's, because she's 
alien to me and she's alien to humanity and and her desire arcs toward humanity out of this weirdness out of selfishness and capriciousness and whimsy and immortality um which after after millennia of it is is galling and it palls but the the idea that if you focus in and you know when your heartbeat will end then everything becomes so much richer and more beautiful and concentrated and precious almost like like a person at the end of their life choosing death with dignity like i feel there's a little bit of that in nicks of like extreme old age but not wanting to just peter out or like end in a war but like the most beautiful part of life is the end of life so i love that about nicks i think at the beginning when I was writing it, Annalise Field was the most like me and Gideon was the most like that, like, romance trope, pretty boy who's mean but has a heart of gold sort of thing. And I think I really explored that really deeply. And after that, I just still am too super in love with Gideon. But also, I look at him and I think, I don't ever have to do this again, no matter how hot, you know, like, I've done the thing. Uh, <laughs> I've done the thing that I've seen and been drawn to, and I'm not sure I approve of being drawn to it. <laughs> I loved writing Salisay's Laundries was the last yes. thing I wrote, was the last thing I wrote. And that was, was so um, powerful to me to write it because it was a stretch. I was, I had read a lot of Nellie Bly. I'd done a lot of research on the Magdalene Laundries and uh, Mike Allen gave me the homework to watch Spotlight about like how real journalism works because he's yeah. a journalist. And all of those things together to tell a story that sort of is, when I when I told it was the, the thing, the latest thing, the most mature thing I've told so far, as far as what I wanna say about humanity and art and how we treat each other and who gets to be free and and journalism is one of the arts um is one of the arts that are like it's not as romantic as you know a novelist or a painter or a sculptor or any of the arts i had explored but at that point journalism was one of the most important arts that i thought i could talk about and so i i really loved writing that one it's it's an amazing story it's funny I think today I saw on your Facebook page that a year ago you were still writing that one. Yeah, cause I wrote it very last because I was afraid of it. And I had had an outline for a while, like um, I outlined by writing chapter titles. And, and the chapter titles are usually very long and tell you a little something about what might happen in that chapter. And the, the, of course, all the chapter titles changed and the shape of it changed and the idea of it even like morphed under me. But um I had the outline and the idea for two years before I attempted it, and it was, it was a difficult piece of writing. I feel to get the right tone of voice for the sort of girl reporter, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, um, but also to do something that was modern as far as philosophically modern, so that it would be relevant um, to keep it entertaining. To uh, I loved all the research that went into like laundry machines of the 19th century and 20th century. I just have a whole like a whole paragraph of laundry machines, and I suddenly understood why Herman Melville will have a whole chapter on chowder because when you love something that much, you just want to talk about it. <laughs> so my sympathies for um, grew even for like the the very verbose 19th century. Like I will t now tell you all about this length of rope because I want to do that in my work and I feel like it is probably pretty indulgent at this point in time of history and writing. 
Oh, that's like every nano writer ever out there who has just learned something and needs a thousand words. I know. It's me. It's me. <laughs> um, one of the things I do love so much about your writing is your world building. There's so much depth. There's so many amazing details. Can you talk a bit about what that process is like for you? Well, I think the internet helped me grow as a writer, which, you know, I was, I was in my 20s um, before I really used it for anything more than email. And it wasn't, and for many years, I didn't have enough money to have the internet, to own it, you know, and so I didn't quite know how to use it properly. I think a generation just like behind me, like my friends, Amal and Jess, they kind of grew up in their teens um, in chat rooms. And so that was something that skipped me entirely. You know, I had email and then I had live journal and then you know, and then as everybody kept saying what I would be like, does anybody know about this? And they'd say, just Google it. And like, but it took me many years to not feel like, well, I don't want to Google it. I just want to go to the library and ask a librarian, <laughs> you know, but I feel like that the sense of with world building, especially, especially for something that takes place in a parallel, an equivalent, but not, but not entirely like world. So what's wonderful about that is that I can still make stuff up. But I, but I have a lot of uh, material to draw metaphor from, which is, which is, I think, the best of both worlds, where I, I need to know 10 names for typewriters in 1910. And then I'll have an idea of what a name of a typewriter would sound like. So there's a lot of royalty and crowns and sovereigns. There's like, so I was like, oh, I will call mine the diadem, you know, because it's not a name that what that existed. I don't need to know everything about the crown typewriter of 1910. I need to know enough to create something like it. And so for world building in the human world, that's sort of what I do on that level. And then for the second world, the gentry world and for the goblin world, there's so much there's so many mythologies and religions and and traditions and folklore about so many fairy fairy creatures, goblin creatures, silly creatures in many languages. And there's just like the deep dive in etymology and um, like take a look at what people fear or what how they might tr be trying to explain a natural phenomenon with an unnatural explanation and then to draw from that and to tangle it or remix it or or rename it um i feel like creates it, it gives us all the kind of structure of this world and all that kind of the community the the community history that's at the back of our brains that feeds everything from like the marvel universe to comic books to to all the tv we watch like this whole it's surrounding us all the time and to kind of go back and back and back and rip out the heart of it and then insert the beating heart into my world. Um, yeah, I think that it's, you know, it's a little bit of robbery and it's a little bit of invention, but I do enjoy the process. I, I love that answer, though, because I I think there's a little bit of a misconception, especially if you're writing secondary world fantasy, that you're just making it up. So how much research do you need to do? You know, just just write the words. And the the reality is a little bit different than that. Well, yes, for me, because I used to just make it up. And um, it's easier and faster, but I'm a better writer for not making it up, I would say. Um, I, I think I could have written some very fine and fluffy things that would have been 
in their own way, not making it up, just so based on everything I've read and liked that they would be a shallow and derivative version of something highly pleasurable, but not um, not necessarily the, the stuff that when I read it, like scars my brain because of the elasticity and the and the great dynamic, uh, like tectonic shifts of language and history that are just popping out when really smart writers are doing really great work like it stains you and I want to do some of that work back I want to like reflect that and I don't know torpedo it out um so that's my goal and and it's um not always easy (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll write a review now she torpedoed it well (laughs) (laughs) So you wear a lot of fabulous hats. You're a writer, a poet, a songwriter and performer, an actor. You narrate audiobooks. Um, So the first question is, how on earth do you do it? I feel like because of Facebook, I present as busier than I am. So I would say I am happily busy right now. But if I post like one thing a day that I'm doing... But people have this like string of things like, oh, she's doing this and this and this and this. They have this idea that I'm super busy, but not all of it takes the whole day. Um, when I have audiobook work, it's a very intense week where I can do very little else. So um, it's maybe four days of uh, four to six hours a day and then plus commute. So so that's an intense and busy time. But that's maybe one week, two weeks, if I'm lucky, of the month. And I've been really trying to get to a structured uh, writing life, but because, you know, there's lots of interruptions to our writing life, I'm lucky if I can sit down at nine and write till noon on most days of the week. I would love to be a five day of the week writer for about five hours. Much could get accomplished. And so for years I have been struggling to create that kind of life. So, um, as a poet, that does fall by the wayside, which is a great sorrow. And so a friend, Cam Rob, a friend of mine and I, we were talking about how we just don't have time. So we thought, oh, anybody can write poetry for one hour a month. So we established the Sitz Fleisch Poetry Hour. It's like eight o'clock on a Monday Eastern time, 8 p.m. Um, so like anybody who wants to drop in and write poetry for an hour, that's the sacred hour of poetry writing. And the more we do it, the more I feel like I particularly think in poetry through the whole month and maybe carve out more time for it. But like June, I didn't even do it. And I didn't even have time to tell the poets, sorry, we're not doing it. It's June traveling by. So I feel like I have to go apologize to them now, um, which I've been meaning to do. Let's see, a poet, singer, songwriter. So that's another thing that the, the singing songwriting composition came from when I was working at Mystic Aquarium and I'd have these long hours in the information booth in the winter when there were very few people there and I was conceiving of these albums. Uh, I had a dream about a rock star named Brimstone Rhine and she looked a certain way and had a very <laughs> kind of fierce aesthetic and she was ridiculous and I knew her name was Brimstone Rhine and I knew that she had a an album called The Headless Bride and I knew that she wore hot pink Superman underwear and like a shroud and that's how she performed. <laughs> um, so I really liked her and so I wrote like a fake album with like fake song titles and then I was like, I could just write this album and I was, then I wrote that and then I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I should probably write another one. And then I kickstarted for it. Um, not kickstarted, it was Indiegogo. And so then suddenly I, I had these two things. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I 
consulted a lot of musicians. I collaborated with many people. And but the way I compose is sort of like, oh, no, no, I got a tune, got a, got my lyrics, sang it in my phone. Don't know what key it's in. It's not the right key. It may not even be a key. Can you do something with this? And then my musician <laughs> friends would be like, why don't we bring it down, you know, to a minor and then and then then we go from there but it's been so fun and i've been away from that for a few years but my friend tina Connolly and my friend mary kroll um they were interested in a collaboration so we're now writing a musical theater podcast called the devil and lady midnight and so we're all writing songs we're writing like scenes and eventually we're hoping to have a podcast that we will then present to some sort of platform you know here's six episodes of a thing with music, ah. but we don't, again, we don't know what we're doing. We've never done it before. So right now we're just doing it for fun. And once it's done, we will see what we have and what we can do with it. But that's sort of, that's one day a week. That's Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for about 90 minutes. And so one day a week over six months, we now have cold opens for all six episodes. The whole first episode with all the songs in it and bits of the others. So that's what it can do over six months. It's pretty powerful, but it's not a fast process either. Um, your husband, you mentioned him earlier, is Carlos Hernandez. He's the author of Sal and Gabe, Gabby Break the Universe, which I love so much. Isn't it um, the best I actually, thing ever? <laughs> so, I actually really want to get him on the show, too. So maybe oh, maybe you can help me out with that. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious, like, what is life with such two amazing and creative people in the same household? A friend of ours who lived with us during the pandemic for about uh, like a year and some change called it the treehouse, <laughs> the, our, our place, the treehouse. She lived basically in our dining room with a couple of room dividers. And she's a director, a theater director. So it was, they were both being professors during during the pandemic in rooms with no walls at opposite ends of, of one bedroom apartment. It was pretty amazing. Um, and then she'd, she'd direct so many shows online at night and or or short films or things like that and you know he'd be you know writing and he'd be professing and i'd be in the room blocked off with bookshelves writing like like this is my life now um so it was explosive and it remains explosive and we've we've learned several things about we've collaborated a lot and we've also had a lot of separate projects and it is it's like the other level up right so i leveled up during my 30s, but I met him at this time when two things were happening. My um, short story collection was just about to come out and his short story collection was six months from coming out. So over the year, we actually started to be friends. We both had our collections out and we were both working on fourth drafts of our current novels. So he's put that particular novel away for now because um, that was the fourth draft of St. Death's Daughter. So he read it and he gave feedback that kind of matched the feedback of an agent I was talking to at the time. And so once I had like two voices telling me this, it was the first huge level up for the novel. And um, we both read our collections to each other in their like final draft stages for, you know, edits and things like that. But it's only been like that times two million. And he, his handle on Twitter is write, teach, play. And that is it, you know, it's not even all of who he is, but he but he is playful at his center and everything he learns, he loves. Like my approach to learning is pretty wary. If I'm not great at it right away, I'm a little grumpy. And like, it's like it's work until it's easy. And when it's easy, it's fun. And it takes me a while to get there. That's my process and I'm working on it. But he loves learning so much that that's the game to him that's playing and so any new form any new structure any new story he just dives in with this like 
joyous, cartoonish, Muppet-like spirit, and out <laughs> comes this enormous tsunami of genius. Um, and not always funny and light and middle grade. And even his middle grade is not always funny and light and middle grade. It's all of that plus nuanced and heartbreaking and, and beautiful. But his mind is so kind of infinite. And I learn from him all the time and I'm awestruck. And of course, his bachelor's was in poetry. So then when he sits down and writes a poem, it's just like, oh, yes, just talk to me like that all day. <laughs> Will you read something for us today? Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. I would love to. I found something that was less than five minutes. So this is chapter one, The Merciful Heist. Annalise Field did not steal the statue because it was the most beautiful thing she ever saw, though it was. She did not steal it because she was angry at its maker and wanted to exact an awesome, a fearsome, a frankly mythopoeic vengeance upon him for any number of recent slights, though she was. She did not steal it for the thrill or the pleasure or the danger, or even because she wanted to keep it for her own, though she did. No, Anna stole the statue to save its life. If she had not, Gideon Alderwood would have destroyed it like he had all the others. She could not let that happen not when it opened its eyes and looked at her like that. Gideon stared at the space where the statue had been. He stared, but the empty plinth remained empty, and the sight of it was like an icy crowbar smashing through his breastbone, prying his ribcage apart, and ripping out the organ it was put there to protect. On the plinth, a smear of paper clay like a footprint. The faucet in the outer hall plinked. That sound had kept him awake for three nights running. It would plink and he would pace. And as he strode back and forth, back and forth, Gideon would listen as on the other side of their shared garret wall, Annalise Field turned restlessly on that diabolically squeaky mattress of hers. And even though he knew which floorboards to avoid, and how to move soft-footed as a cat, and how heavily Anna slept. He also knew that she would hear him pacing anyway. The walls were that thin. Sometimes Gideon thought he heard the sound of her eyelids opening in the dark, felt the weight of her glare as it rested on the wall, as she thought of him and loathed him. Stopped him mid-stride, thoughts like that. But the empty plinth, that stopped his heart. Had the statue walked? They usually did not move the first day after completion, not while they were still wet, but they never stayed wet for long. After 24 hours, his statues always hardened spontaneously, as if fired from within by some infernal kiln. Gideon might wake to some noise or turn at some sound, only to find that the plaster surface of his latest statue had become as smooth and cool as an eggshell. Not long after that, another day or so, and the statue would start quickening. At first, the shifts were subtle. A hand lifted, a chin tilted, blank, pallid eyes opening like holes in space to reveal orbs like the metallic carapaces of fig beetles, black, shining green. 
eyes like exoskeletons, an alien luster that revealed nothing. It wasn't until he... It wasn't until they opened their eyes that he destroyed them. Gideon thought he could just about bear them if they stopped at movement, if they simply stirred like Anna in her bed next door, slightly in their sleep. He would have spared them the hammer if only they did not look at him. Plink, plink, plink. No, it was too soon. The newest statue could not have walked yet. It had not been a full day since he had smoothed the last lines. The curve of the ear, the high forehead, the careless loops of hair. Not a day since he had washed the paper clay from his hands. That left only plink, plink, plink. It was past midnight, but no one stirred next door. Annalise Field, Gideon Alderwood whispered, God damn it! Claire, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a treat. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was so generous of you. If you'd like to hear an extended version of my conversation with Claire and hear her read from her collection, check out the podcast version of today's program. And you can find out more about CSC Cooney's books on our website at wskg.org. Vestating Attacks. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Mm-hmm.